Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you gathered on the Lord's Day. And I invite you as we continue in our corporate worship to turn with me in your copy of God's Word as we pick up our exposition through the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, and we will be focusing this morning on verses 49 through 59. John chapter 6, verses 49 through 59. And as you're turning there, I would like to extend a very warm welcome to our visitors, those who are with us for the first time, as well as those who are old friends gathered together with us. We are thankful you're here, you are here and look forward to a time of fellowship and communion together, Lord willing, in our fellowship time after the service. But let's give our attention to hearing God's Word. John chapter 6, the day after the feeding of the 5,000 on the other side of the shore, as Jesus has been teaching and instructing these Jews, we pick up in verse 49, and we'll read through verse 59. Let us hear the word of God. John 6, beginning in verse 49. This is Jesus speaking, and he says to the Jews, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For My flesh is food indeed, and My blood is drink indeed. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in him. As the living Father sent Me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on Me will live because of Me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever." These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's unite our hearts and ask for God's help and blessing as we come to the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, come, we pray, as we've sung dispel the darkness from our eyes. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would come and that You would illuminate our hearts and our minds to the glories of Your Word. The Word that You inspired through men. Words which exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord, the Lord Jesus, promised that He would send the Comforter to His people, 
And that You, Holy Spirit, would not draw glory to Yourself, but glory to the Son. And that is what we plead for. We pray that You would minister in our hearts. That we would see and behold wondrous things from Your Word. That we would see the glorious meanings of our Savior's words to this crowd that we would sit, as it were, at the feet of the Scriptures with humble hearts, ready to be taught, ready to be instructed, ready to be corrected, exhorted, comforted, encouraged. Our gracious Father in Heaven, we pray that none of us would walk away this day indifferent to Your Word and indifferent to Christ. We pray by the powerful act of sending Your Spirit into the hearts of all Your people whom You have chosen, that You would make us see the glories of Christ. Father, we need Your help. We confess we are sinful even as Your people. Our minds still have remnants of darkness in which our thinking is shrouded. We have so many ways that we think wrongly about our God and about the Gospel. And so we need You to send the Comforter, the Teacher, Your Holy Spirit to our hearts to be our instructor. We pray that You'd be our help, Father. Cause Your people to glory in Christ this morning. The sweetness of what it is to know Christ as friend. To know Him as our all in all. And we pray that You would cause the unbeliever to be jealous as they seek for happiness and joy in the fleeting things of sin in this world. We pray that You would awaken them to see that true and lasting joy is found only when it is sought from Christ. Father, help us, we pray. Draw near to us. Be the help of Your people and bring glory to Your name the name of Your Son, and the name of Your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick up this morning after a few weeks break. In this discourse in John chapter 6, Jesus has been speaking, if you remember, to a hostile crowd. It is a crowd that is by and large spiritually blinded to Jesus' identity and His message. You remember, this is the very crowd who demanded of Christ a sign just the day after Jesus had just miraculously multiplied food for 5,000 people. And throughout this discourse, in the face of their unbelief, Jesus has not shied away from making plain to them the truth of God's election that their own unbelief does not in any way hinder God from drawing in His people whom He has foreknown from before the foundation of the world. He has made clear to them that unless they be drawn from heaven by the Father, they will not and cannot come to Him. And yet, as we see as we pick up in our passage this morning, the Lord Jesus so graciously still continues to plead with them that they would come to Him as the living bread from heaven that they may have life. 
And so let's turn at the beginning to our exposition of the passage. And then secondly, we will turn to our doctrine and our application. But first of all, let's consider the exposition of the passage. What is the meaning of the text before us? How are we to understand it? How are we not to understand it? So that we understand clearly what God is saying to His people. If you have your Bibles open, I, or have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open as we'll pick up in verse 49 of John 6 and we'll make our way through. John 6, verse 49, Jesus says to them, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Now, if you remember, back in verse 31, it was the Jews who demanded of Him a sign. They demanded of Him yet another miracle, even though just the day before they had seen the miracle of the 5,000. And in that demand, they appealed to their father's experience, the Jewish father's experience, in the wilderness where God, through Moses, provided manna to the entire Israelite nation for a whole generation. And when this crowd appealed to that, they were making an accusation to Christ. They were essentially saying, Moses fed all of Israel for a generation, 40 years. And all you've done is feed 5,000 people once. And therefore, show us a sign and we will believe you. And Jesus responds here essentially, it is true, your fathers did eat the manna in the wilderness. All of them ate it. And what has become of every single one of them? They are all dead. Jesus is saying to these, this Jewish crowd, you are judging my identity with carnal and fleshly judgment. As though my earthly ministry can only be deemed as greater than Moses' ministry if I come doing what Moses did and doing more of it. But Jesus' point here is I didn't come just to be a repeat of the Moses of old. I came to surpass Moses and fulfill Moses' own prophecy that he said there is a greater prophet than myself coming. The manna given to Israel ministered to a temporal uh, temporal need, and even that not for such a long time, But that manna in no way immortalized the fathers. They are dead. And so verse 50, Jesus says, this, referring to Himself, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. What Jesus is doing here is he's connecting for these Jews who should have known their Bibles better, but he's connecting for them the manna that they so highly praised as God gave it to the Israelites in in the wilderness. He's connecting that miracle of manna given to Israel and showing them that that was merely a, if you want, a black and white picture 
compared to the now full color Christ who was to come into the world. That manna was what we call a type. The real thing, the fulfillment, the antitype is now here. Right? You remember verse or the end of chapter 5. When Jesus says to the Jews, he says, you, you guys have set your hope on Moses, but it is Moses that wrote of me. And it's obvious you don't believe Moses because if you did, you would believe my words. Christian, this is how we are to understand much of our Old Testament because this is how Jesus and the apostles understood the Old Testament. Namely, before Christ came into the world in the fullness of time, God, in order to prepare the world to understand the surpassing excellencies of Christ, God first gave to Israel these faint pictures which Christ, when He comes, He not only fulfills them, but He surpasses them in His greatness. These Jews here are comparing Christ's earthly bread that He supplied to the 5,000 people. They're comparing that with Moses' bread. And they're saying, so far it seems like Moses' is better. And Jesus is saying to them, you're missing the point. I did not come to give bread. I came to be bread for the life of the world. Verse 51. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, Let me pause here just to make a few clarifications so that we understand clearly what Jesus is and what He is not saying. First of all, I've already used these words and I'll, I'll use them explicitly now and explain what I mean by them. We're dealing here in this passage in the, in the realm of what we call the type and the anti-type. How many of us have heard that language? Some of us. And others of you have not heard And it's important, you're going to read good books where you run across this language and they're going to assume you know what they're talking about. So it's good that you hear it from the pulpit so that you're not caught unawares when you read it elsewhere. A type, and I wish we had better language in our day to explain this, a type is a faint picture or shadow of something that has continuity with something that will later come that will fulfill that type. That's called the anti-type. But there will also be discontinuities because this antitype is better than the type. Does that make sense? Okay. With that lesson aside, when we're in the realm of type and antitype, we are always dealing with continuity and discontinuity. If there were any continuity, then there wouldn't be any connection between the two things. But if there were any discontinuity, then both things would be the same picture. And there wouldn't be any difference. Well, one of the obvious discontinuities here, and I think this goes without saying, is that when Jesus says, I am the bread which comes down from heaven, guess what He doesn't mean? He doesn't mean He's physically bread, does He? 
No, he's flesh and blood, as he makes clear. He is the Son of Man become, or Son of God become man in the flesh for our sakes. But there's a second discontinuity here that I want you to pick up on and pay attention. The second discontinuity here is the kind of death and life that's being contrasted. Okay, so notice in verse 49. Jesus is clearly referencing natural, physical death when He says to them, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But when He promises that the one who eats of Himself will not die, He's not promising them an escape from physical death, is He? In fact, we know very clearly from other passages of Scripture that Jesus actually promises that many who follow Him will actually experience an expedited physical death simply because they are His followers. But better than manna, which for a season preserved Israel's physical life, Christ is now proclaiming whoever eats of this bread He's promising them an escape from an even worse death than physical death. He's promising the escape from what Revelation calls the second death. What we would summarize as spiritual and eternal death. He is speaking here of a life that transcends mere physical life and which extends even beyond the grave. Like when he says to Martha in John chapter 11 that he who believes in me, in me though he may die, yet what? Yet shall he live. Jesus is the true heavenly bread which God gives to the world for the everlasting life of sinners. However, to receive this life from Christ, Christ says one must feed upon Him. This is the third discontinuity that I want to draw out here before we move on. The third discontinuity. Whereas the Israelite... Um, fathers physically gathered and physically ate manna in the wilderness to receive its physical benefits, Jesus here in John 6 picks up on that language of eating and drinking to describe coming to Him by faith. Okay, That's what Jesus is getting at, just to simplify this. I know sometimes the language startles people. When Jesus talks about one eating the flesh of the Son of God and drinking the blood of the Son of God, He's talking about what it means for one to come spiritually and feed upon Christ by faith. And suffice it to say, I obviously don't think that what Jesus is speaking about here has anything to do with the Lord's table. Okay? And there's many reasons I could give you for why I think that's so, but that'll be for another time. Eating and drinking here the blood and the flesh of the Son of God is an analogy of what it means to trust Christ. And it's a profound analogy with many things that we could unpack. And I want to give you just at least, I could give you more, I want to give you at least 
three things this morning of why, three reasons why Jesus describes faith in Himself as eating and drinking the Son of God. So three things. Number one, I'll give you the heading and then I'll elaborate a little bit. Number one reason that Jesus compares coming to Him by faith with the analogy of eating and drinking is this. Eating is a necessary act if I am to derive the nourishment food is supposed to provide to me. Right? We all understand that. Eating is a necessary act if I am to derive the nourishment that food is supposed to provide for me. You can sit down at a table filled with bread, steak, you name it, and you can look at the food, you can analyze the food, you can talk about the food, you can handle the food, but until you eat the food, you do not get nourished by the food. And it's the same with Christ. A sinner can look at Christ from afar. He can know the truth. He can speculate about the truth. He can even admire in a certain sense certain things about Christ. But until he actually comes to Christ by faith and feeds upon Christ as it were spiritually, that sinner remains unnourished by Christ and Christ remains outside of him. Second reason, and this is related to the first, but a bit more nuanced. Secondly, eating is an act of appropriation. I think Jesus even alludes to this. I'll mention it when we get there in just a moment. Eating is an act of appropriation. How often do we use the language, often at the Lord's table, of we pray that God would help us to appropriate Christ to our hearts by faith? Eating is an act of appropriation. Here's what I mean. Eating is what takes something, is what takes something that is outside of me and makes it part of me. Right? Like I already said, the table could be spread. My plate could even be full with delicacies. But that food does not actually become my food until I eat it and digest it. It is by eating that food which was outside me that that food then is taken inside me and as it were becomes a part of me. Supplying health and strength. I think this is what Jesus is alluding to in verse 56. When He says, He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in Him. Martin Luther said that for him, the sweetness of the Gospel... I'll start over. Luther said that to him, the sweetness of the Gospel lies in the personal pronouns of the Gospel. And what he meant by that is that the sweetness of the Gospel is not that I know that there is a Christ, but that He is my Christ. That there is not a God with whom I have to do, but He is my God and my Lord. The Christian comes to Christ supremely in His sight 
with a supremely in his, the Christian sight, remembering the fact that this is the Christ who was crucified for me. what appropriation is spiritually is applying the truths of who Christ is and what He has done to my own soul. There are many offices the Lord Jesus executes for His people and they are all glorious and worthy to be admired. But at the forefront, the priestly ministry of Christ, the one who was God and became man and was crucified for my sins and rose for me for my justification on the third day. That is how I first and foremost appropriate Christ to my own heart. His satisfaction that takes away all my sins. That satisfies the justice of God. That's the second thing, is that eating is an act of appropriation. But thirdly, and quite obvious, the command to eat and drink of Christ is a profoundly personal act. Right? You cannot eat by proxy. No one can eat for you. And so, unbeliever, if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, hear the Word of God. You must yourself believe in Christ if you are to be saved. You must come. Your pastor can't believe for you. Your brothers and sisters cannot believe for you. Your parents cannot believe for you. You must come and feast spiritually upon Christ who is the only Savior between God and man. Now let's move on in verse 52. It says the Jews then, or therefore, the Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, there's at least two ways to take this, and commentators are split. I think it's probably a mixture of both. Either this entire crowd really is so dense that they literally think Jesus is recommending some sort of cannibalism. Or, and that's possible, we have seen such denseness previously in the Gospel of John. Or, possibly, and there's probably a mixture of this, I suspect even though some of them did perceive that Jesus is using an analogy here, and we think that He has a a meaning underneath the literal meaning, that still, in order to mock him and make his words sound absurd, they just respond like, this guy is actually telling us that we need to eat and drink his flesh and his blood. But notice Jesus' response in verse 53. I think this was, would indicate a level of hardness of heart on their part. Because notice what he doesn't do in verse 53. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I just realized how bad that sounded. And how confusing that might be. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't illustrate it. He just repeats it. And in fact, he gets even more enigmatic with them. Verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, they're confused. And Jesus says, Let me make it very clear. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God or Son of Man, and drink His blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Notice he states it both positively and negatively. Verse 53, he states it negatively. Apart from me, he says, apart from coming to me by faith, in which he's using the analogy of feasting upon him, he says, you have no life. No qualification. Apart from Christ, sinners are walking dead men. Christian, every single one of you, you remember this. From before God opened your eyes and enlightened your your mind, and you think back on what you were prior to knowing Christ, was that life? I mean, sure, your heart was beating, your lungs were still bringing, uh, you know, bringing in air, but we were dead even while we lived. That's why Paul often describes us that way. Dead in trespasses and sins. Our understandings were completely darkened. Our wills were enslaved to sin. Our hearts were at enmity towards the things of God. Our life was aimlessly following the prince of the power of the air, wanting nothing to do with the God who made us. Was that life? That is hardly worthy of the word life. Especially when you consider the heights of glory that God designed uniquely the human race, His image bearers, to experience in the presence and communion with, in communion with God. Higher than the angels. Higher than the beasts. That we would spend eternity in the perfect paradise, in the presence of God, offering to God our reasonable service and reasonable worship in never-ending joy and bliss and happiness. And we threw it all away for sin. And in so doing, we became literally more like the beasts, dead in sin than we were in intended to be in a state of uprightness in the garden. Christ now comes into that lifeless, dark world at enmity with Him, and He comes to give life to sinners that they may have it and have it abundantly. Unbeliever, please listen to me and mark this. Real life. I know your heart is beating as physically as mine is. You're breathing in air right now just as much as mine is. But real life. And by that, my, by that I mean real God-centered life with substance because it is the life of God in the soul 
will forever elude you and evade you unless and until you seek it from the Lord Jesus Christ. The world and all of its enticements of sin, it offers you counterfeits of life. That's what they are. That's not how the devil sends them, sells them to you. He doesn't wrap sin up and write counterfeit, will not actually make you happy in the long run. He sells it to you as the real deal, saying, go against God. Be an enemy of God, and you will be like God. And you'll have all the happiness you've ever sought, and it is a lie. Only restoration to the God who made us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will ever really truly bring long-lasting happiness and joy and life. So that's negatively. But then notice positively in this verse 54. He says, whoever... This is open to this crowd. It's open to you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has present tense eternal life and I will future raise him up on the last day. Christian, the blessings of being a Christian are both now and future. And we need to realize that. Some people have an over-realized eschatology. They think that too much has happened that's really supposed to happen in the future. But there are other Christians who have an under-realized eschatology. And they think that this is great. I'm just kind of sitting here you know, twiddling my thumbs waiting for that great day off in the future when I will see Him as He is and He's coming in glory. Don't get me wrong, there is a great day future of glory coming for the people of God when Christ cries out and those who died in Christ rise un- under the resurrection of life. But more than that, eternal life begins now in the believer. The very moment the sinner trusts in Christ. Because the very moment the sinner trusts in Christ is the very moment they begin to have spiritual union and communion with Him who is true heavenly food and drink for the sin-sick soul. Verse 56 makes this explicit. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I I in him. That's not just our future. That's now. Eternal life begins the moment Christ, by His Spirit, takes the reins of our heart and imparts to us all of His graces by His Spirit. Paul viewed the Christian life this way. Galatians 2.20. Paul is by no means yet glorified in Galatians 2.20. And yet he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live, present tense, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Peter. 1 Peter 4.8 Though you do not now see Him, 
yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, Peter's saying, the hope of heaven is so much more than just something out there in the future. Heaven for the believer begins in the soul of the man here on earth as the living Christ enters in and abides in us, providing to us foretaste of the even greater glory to come. That's why we sing in that hymn, the streams on earth I've tasted, but more deeply I'll drink above. Finally, verses 57 through 58. Won't make comment on these. We'll look at them more in our application. Jesus says, summarizing this entire discourse, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will, ne- will live forever. And then John closes these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. That closes off our exposition. Let's now turn our attention to our doctrine and our application. So exposition is a perusal of the text. What does the text mean? How should we understand it? And now in the second section, I've combined, for the sake of time, doctrine and application. How are we instructed now doctrinally from the text? And how does that tangibly and practically apply to our Christian life? And I only have one thing that I want to open up for us this afternoon by way of doctrine and application. One simple but profoundly important thing. It is this, if you're taking notes. The defining mark of a true Christian is the mark of continual feeding upon Christ by faith. Okay? The defining mark of a true Christian is the mark of continually feeding upon Christ by faith. That's what I want to talk about and drive home. And brothers and sisters, this cuts both ways, doesn't it? For those who you're here and you know in your heart of hearts that yes, by the grace of God, this text is true of me. I do know what Jesus means by feeding upon His flesh and upon His blood. For you, this should be a great encouragement and it should boost your assurance of faith. But it cuts the exact opposite way or ought to for those of you who know nothing of this intimate knowledge of Christ. And it ought to be both convicting and frightening to you as you consider the state of your soul before an all-seeing God. Jesus is laying out for us, all of us here, in just bare-bones, simple terms, the mark that separates genuine Christians from false converts. Namely this, 
The true Christian doesn't matter how mature or immature they are. It could be day one of being being a Christian. The true Christian has a living relationship with the risen Christ in which they feed again and again their souls upon the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. They draw from Christ. They lean upon Christ. They depend upon Christ. As one leans upon his best friend. But for the false convert, no matter matter how many outward shows of religion you might have, no matter the Christian boxes you have learned to check, they are dead spiritually because they have no vital union with Christ. They are those that Jesus talks about in chapter 15 of John's Gospel. They are the branches that have been severed from the vine and therefore wither and bear no fruit. Bethany, listen to verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Bethany, listen to me. I don't preach my sermons for YouTube. And the people that I don't, most of them I don't know. I'm speaking right now to you, the flock that God has in His wisdom, put under our charge here at Bethany. Bethany, with judgment day honesty, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for Christ Himself? Do you live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you? And someone might be tempted to say, does even such a question need to be asked in a church like ours? Where the Gospel is so prevalent and we have such a rigorous new members class, certainly no one fake is getting through that. That's not true. My brothers and my sisters, hypocrisy is always, always a danger in the church. People play church. People play religion. They learn the language. They learn the theology. I have known people better schooled in Reformed theology than probably some of us who don't even know the Lord savingly. Hypocrites can learn these things and yet the root of the matter is not in them. And brothers and sisters, I say that to you as one who has seen it with my own eyes. As the seed of the Gospel was sown on that rocky soil, and at first it appeared like it sprung up quicker than everyone else, and it looked like life was promising. And yet as time went by, it was scorched and they fell away and they no longer even profess the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christian, I plead with you this morning. Open wide your heart to God and with judgment day honesty, plead with God and ask Him, Lord, am I genuine? It's not always wrong for the Christian to ask that question. Lord, am I one who has sincerely come to Christ and continually comes to Christ and will in the future come again and again to Christ to draw from the excellencies of his, the storehouse of blessings that He is? Lord, am I one who owns Peter's words in this chapter in verse 68? Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Or, Lord, am I a sham? Am I fake? Some of you might know that already. I don't know who you are. The Lord knows who you are. You're already past the question of being convinced one way or the other, and you just don't know what to do. And you're sitting and you're either wondering or you're already convinced that I'm the one guy in the room where everyone else seems to have something that I don't, and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm fearful to admit it. My friend, listen to me. If that is you, the very best thing you can do for your never-dying soul is admit it, brother. There's, There's no condemnation here. Your pastors, your brothers, your sisters are not going to get angry with you or shun you if you suddenly come to them and you say, hey, I've been struggling and I honestly don't even know if I have ever sincerely loved Christ for Christ Himself. You know what our response to that will be? Is praise God for your humility and your honesty and that you fear God enough and that you don't fear men such that you want to address it now. And we will pastor you and help you and counsel you and pray for you. Because here's the thing, it will one day come out. It's not like if you die as a member in good standing at Bethany Baptist Church, that just guarantees your entrance into heaven. Like, okay, I made it. 30 more seconds and I'm gone. And as long as I don't apostatize, I'm going to heaven. That's not how it works. Membership in a healthy church should reflect the fact that you have a healthy heart that is related genuinely by faith to a perfect Savior. It's better to fear God now. Yes, let His Word shake you up a bit. I know that feeling. But fear God who can destroy both body and cast the soul into hell. Don't fear man. Don't go into Judgment Day a hypocrite. Let me ask us a couple questions. Maybe three, actually. Just three bare bones, basic questions about 
the lit, kind of getting a litmus test of where am I at spiritually. Number one, do you long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word which speaks to you about He who is true food and true drink for your soul? Honestly, do you long for the Scriptures which speak to you of Christ and His glories? Like those on the road to Emmaus, do your hearts burn within you when the Scriptures are opened up and your heart is melted with joy as you hear again and again the same old story. Jesus and His love. I know there are seasons of dryness. Not every devotion is a Mount of Transfiguration type of experience where I just want to stay here forever and put up my tents so that we never have to go anywhere. I, I, I'm a Christian just like you. I understand the struggles. But are the Scriptures and the Christ that they contain a source of life and refreshment to you Or is it just a burden to have to read the Word of God and you would just as soon do anything and everything else? Second question. Do you pray? And I don't just mean at prayer meeting. We should pray at prayer meeting. And I don't just mean right right before meals. But do you pray with an eagerness to get alone with God, to commune with God through Christ? Pouring out your soul before God. The praises, the griefs, the burdens, the struggles, the triumphs, the anxieties, the fears... Is the prayer closet a place you long to get to knowing that there is where my best friend dwells? That's where my best friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, lives. Is when I'm on my knees alone. Do you find yourself throughout the day realizing I'm, right now I am weak, I am beat up, I am angry, I'm at my end, I'm impatient, but there in prayer is true food and true drink for my soul. There in prayer is an overflowing fountain of mercies to quench my never-ending thirst for grace and and for help. Spurgeon, when he was asked, what's more important, reading the Bible or prayer? said that he would, he would always respond, well, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? Third question. Do you live before the face of Christ? Do you live with the awareness that Christ goes before me? Christ guards behind me. Christ is beside me. Children, Kiddos, listen to me for a moment. Kids, do you realize that Jesus Christ is a friend who will never, ever, ever fail you? How many times have you known your brother or your sister or your friend who they are good friends, don't get me wrong, 
but they failed you. All of you know that feeling. Jesus Christ will never, ever fail you. Children, do you live your life? And think about this. Some of, plenty of you are old enough to think about your life. As you think about your day by day, as you go about your play, as you go about your interaction with your siblings, your brothers and sisters, and your friends, and as you struggle from time to time with your own sin and your own anger and your own selfishness, do you go to Christ? Is Christ in your mind? He, even though I don't see Him, He's sitting in heaven physically, but He promises to be with all of His people who look to Him for grace? Do you walk around knowing my best friend is always with me? And that I can turn to Him and I can speak with Him and lay out before Him all the needs and the struggles of my heart because He is the greatest friend this world has ever known who will never fail to give me the help and the grace that I ask Him for. Children, remember God in your youth. Think about God in your youth. Make Christ your best friend when you are young and He will not cease to be your best friend when you get older. My dear brothers and sisters, listen to me. I want to qualify something of some of the things I've said. The very last thing that I want to do this morning is be a preacher and a pastor who breaks the bruised reed. That's always a, it's always a challenge. It's always a liability of preaching. When you're trying to admonish hypocrisy, you can very easily cause undue harm to the weak and struggling believer. That is not my intention this morning. So let me be clear. I am not talking right now about how the issue of how mature or how immature your relationship with Christ is. I am simply talking about does a relationship exist? I get it. I was a young Christian. I pastor plenty of young Christians. I get it that as we grow from babies into adults, our communion with Christ grows naturally deeper. And we're quicker to pray. We're more wise in our application with the Scriptures. We, we are deeper as we grow in grace. I get that. But even, and perhaps especially, even the babiest of Christians can say, this text applies to me. And they can say, I may not know what I'm doing half the time, in how I should be relating to Christ, and I'm sure my prayers are probably not always pretty in the ears of God. And sure, they may not have all their theology figured out and everything like that. In some senses, they probably, in God's eyes, look like a one-year-old looks to us in our eyes when they're trying to feed themselves with a spoon, right? Messy, but they still get fed, and it's still sincere. 
Young Christian, you may be one of those who, you know, I've got a lot of room to grow. I know I don't have as much theology and proper whatever as the next guy, but this thing I do know. The Lamb of God saved my life and my soul, and He is now and forever will be my best friend whom I take everything to for the rest of my life. Young Christian, keep and foster that disposition. That childlike disposition. Yes, your your zeal will be tempered with knowledge as you grow more mature. But don't be discouraged just because you haven't reached maturity yet. But rather rejoice and thank God that the root of the matter is in you. And that one thing you know is that Jesus Christ is mine and I am His. I want to speak to the unbeliever this morning. And when I say unbeliever, I'm talking potentially to the one who professes Christ, but the root of the matter is not in you. And I'm talking to the one who simply just doesn't even profess Christ. Christ is true food and true drink for the sin-sick soul. There are many in this room today who are Christians, who I could point them out if I wanted to, whose very testimonies, I would be one of these, whose very testimonies about what their life was like before they came to Christ, they would tell you their life was one in which they sought joy and happiness anywhere and everywhere except God. And they attained as much of the world as they possibly could. And it ultimately left them dead and empty inside. Unbeliever, I know you want happiness. I know you want joy, and I know that because you are made in the image of God and you are made supremely to enjoy and glorify God forever. And because you've stiff-armed Him, the one that we were made for, you are sniffing around for anything and everything. Maybe this will make me happy. Maybe this. And it lasts for five minutes or a week. And now maybe it's this. God has put eternity into the heart of every person for that very reason. Listen to me. True life and true happiness will always elude and evade you until and unless you seek it from the Lord Jesus Christ. Alcohol will not give it to you. Drugs will not give it to you. Theft and covetousness will leave you empty. Pornography and sexual immorality will leave you guilty and defiled and depressed and despairing. Christ and Christ alone is that pure fountain of living water which if you bathe in it, will leave you pure and holy and full of joy. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. 
unbeliever, apply to Christ. Come to Christ in His Word by faith. There's nothing stopping you. He is the great physician of the soul. And hear this, not one case has been brought to the Lord Jesus Christ Not one sin-sick soul has been brought to Him which He has not been able to cure. He will receive even the vilest offender. From the hypocrite who has sinned against great light and truth and knowledge to the out-and-out sinner who thinks he has out-sinned the grace of God. The good news of the Gospel, my friend, is you cannot out-sin the grace of God. The one thing Jesus requires of you is that you feel your need of Him and come to Him. Come to the crucified Savior who died for sinners like you and I and find in Christ true food and true drink for your soul. Lastly, Christian, let's draw to a close. Bethany, you know this. I say this often. I try to emphasize this on purpose often. I am a Christian alongside of you before I'm a pastor. Pastor is a certain position I occupy in the church. But before I'm a pastor, I'm more fundamentally a Christian. And because of that, I am subject to the same struggles in the Christian life that you are. I know what it's like to live a life where your zeal is always mixed with dullness and faith is always mixed with unbelief and our strength is always mixed with weakness. And I know, like you, when we're living the Christian life, we're usually living it somewhere on a spectrum. We might do this in any given day. Might do this over the course of a week or a month. On the one side of the spectrum, there's the low seasons where it just seems like spiritual declension has come upon my soul. It seems that God is far from me. Perhaps it's because you left off the means of grace. That wouldn't be a surprise. Other times, it's simply due to God withdrawing His countenance to test us. There's that side of the spectrum, not doing so well, And then there's the entirely opposite side of the spectrum where this is just where we wish we could live all the days of our life. And the Lord is near to us. We're quick to pray. Our hearts are longing for every single morsel we can get from the Word of God. Christ is near to my heart. And your assurance is boosted and bolstered, and you just feel like, honestly, if, my, if I found out right now martyrdom is to be my end, I am fine with that. Those are the Romans 8 seasons. But more often, more usually, we live somewhere between those two. And so how do we pursue greater measures and depths of communion with Christ? Remember Christ's words to the church in Revelation who had lost their first love. 
What does Jesus say to them? He says, return, repent, and do the works you did at first. Remember Paul in Philippians chapter 3 when he talks about the greatness of the goal that he's trying to obtain, the righteousness that is not his own, but a righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus by faith. And then he immediately turns around and he qualifies. He says, brothers, not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect. And yet, what does he say? He says, I press on to make it my own, that which Christ Jesus has laid hold for me. Christian, press on to know more of Christ. To know Him more deeply. Have a a holy discontentment. Usually discontentment is a sin. There is a holy discontentment when we know, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not what I once was, and I'm thankful that I am what I am, but I'm discontent that I'm not yet what I will be. And so, Lord, would You hasten the day? Would You sanctify me more and further? Make Christ grow dearer to me? How do we do that? Christian, I just want to end. I've gone long. I want to end with an analogy and an exhortation, okay? How do we do that? Consider the picture of the manna that God gave Israel in the wilderness. How much manna did God give to Israel each day? Only enough for that day, right? As the Israelites moved from place to place through the wilderness, new mercies from God met them in every new place they went. Every new location, every new morning. But they had to gather it for that day. Right? And it says that the person who gathered little had no lack, and the person who gathered too much had nothing left over. And it was to teach the Israelites to live not upon yesterday's or last week's mercies, but but upon the fresh day-by-day mercies God would supply Christian, there is a lesson there for us when it comes to feeding upon Christ by faith. First of all, let me say this, Christian. If you're cutting yourselves off from the means of grace, Bible reading, prayer, gathering with the saints, corporate prayer, meditation, fellowship, you name it, it's no surprise that you're starving spiritually and declining in your spiritual health. The Christian who leaves off reading and meditating in prayer is very quickly shriveling in their soul. But I also think, even for those who haven't fallen off the means of grace, I think sometimes we think, sometimes we, we find ourselves stagnant in our communion with Christ because we're trying to live off, live off of yesterday, yesterday's or last week's manna. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying last week's manna wasn't good. It was good. And we should dwell on last week's sermon and the sermon from the week before that. 
But we must seek God anew every day. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, You are my God. Early in the morning will I seek You. And there are countless psalms I could recount for you. We need to, Christian, gather new manna for our souls every time it's a new day. We need to wake up, shake off whatever slumber you have to shake off so that you're at least somewhat in your right mind, and we need to get on our knees and we need to thank God, first of all, that I woke up again today, Lord. You didn't take me in my sleep last night. You've given me another day. And then, first thing, we go to God in prayer and we pray something like this. Lord, it doesn't have to be complicated. Lord, today I seek Your face. Today has been ordained by You with all of the good things and all of the challenges But in all of them, what I need most, Lord, is to seek Your face and to walk with Christ. And You, Lord, have promised in Your Word that new mercies will rise to meet me as I walk by faith. And so, Father, feed me upon the bread of life. Father, cause me To have eyes that are open to to behold wondrous things from Your Word. Father, by Your Holy Spirit, bring Christ near and dear to my heart. Make Him my all, my boast, my contentment, my joy, my wisdom. And warm my heart with the love of God that knows no end in Christ Jesus. Father, cause, as I look outside my window, cause all the glitterings of Satan's baits and the world's baits to become dull to my eyes and cause me to seek You and You alone this day as You have promised to supply new manna and new mercies as You feed me upon the graces and the glories that are found in Your Son. And then we get up from our knees and what do we do? We seek the Lord. We seek Him in His Word. We seek Him in in prayer. We seek Him in communion with the saints. We seek Him even to know His kind hand in providence and the world that He's made. And we look to Him to keep His promise because He has said, no good thing do I withhold from Him who walks uprightly. And Christ says, whatever you ask in My name and according to My will, My Father will give it. Does that not include the prayer for a closer walk with Christ? Christian, by the grace of God, let us seek and pursue with greater and deeper measure Communion with God who has redeemed us to Himself. That God may be glorified in us and that we may be supremely happy in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray, as we sung last week, more love to Thee, O Christ, more love to Thee. Father, the postures of our hearts are, as it were, on bended knee, pleading You to give what You have promised. All of us, all of Your people know Though we do walk with Christ, we do not walk with Him with the nearness and the dearness that we desire, that He desires for us. Father, we thank You for the promise of Your Word that if we draw near to You, You will draw near to us. Hear that prayer, Father. May all of us this week be more sensitive, more tender in heart, to walk with Christ, to expect new mercies and new manna to be fed by Your gracious Word, Your gracious promises, words that lead us to forgive, words that lead us to be courageous, words that lead us to be faithful, words that lead us to love when loving is difficult. All these things come from Christ and the grace and the strength come from Christ's Spirit. So grant what glorifies You, Father. Conform us into the image of Your Son. Draw into the fold, Father, those who are outside. Those who have never known such a friend, such a faithful friend, draw near to them. Bless them by changing what they desire so that they desire what is true life. The Lord Jesus Himself. Our Father, we pray now as we depart for our fellowship meal, our time of fellowship together, that You would bless our time. Bless the food. We pray that You would give us strength for this afternoon. Be with with our brother Thaddeus as he teaches in church history this afternoon. And Father, bless our time in between that we would redeem the time knowing that the days are evil Cause us to care for one another spiritually. To pray for one another as we have need. Draw near to us, we pray. We ask in Christ's name.